Join me in the book of Revelation chapter 1, is where we're going to be this morning. Revelation chapter 1. Around 2,000 years ago, some ladies who were followers of Jesus, they went looking for Jesus, expecting to find him dead. But they discover that he's not. He's alive. Turn to the person on your right and then the person on your left and say, Jesus is alive. Now, listening to you, I'm not quite sure. I don't think that's probably the emotion that came that morning. So can we try that again? But just try to kind of imagine their excitement. And I want you to try that with one another. On your left, on your right, go. Jesus is alive. Yeah. Amen. Another question for you. I want you to ask the person on your right and on your left. What are you looking for? Ask the person on your right that question, then ask the person on your left. Same question. What are you looking for? Now, we asked this question to kind of do a, a little recap, a little review from a few Sundays ago. We asked the same question to you um, last month or so, and it's a question that I think if we're honest, many of us would answer that question, or most people would probably answer, I'm looking for some kind of change in my circumstance, a change in my situation. I'm looking for some kind of turning point, maybe in my relationship status, or my finances, or my job situation, our government. I'm looking for some kind of turning point or change, and, and maybe even my own relationship with God, because it just feels like it's grown so cold. And as we worked our way through the first 11 verses of this first chapter of Revelation, we come to find out that the the Christians, the first century Christians to whom this revelation was first given, they're not much different than us. We're a lot like them. Many of them were, were also looking for some kind of turning point. They were under a, a Roman, a cruel Roman government, many of them being persecuted because they followed Jesus. Some were being thrown in prison. Some were being banished and isolated on islands like John the Apostle, who's the one who receives this vision. Many of the Christians in that day, and, and you can just read chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation to find out, were just complacent and apathetic and had compromised with the culture. It was difficult to distinguish who was really following Jesus and who wasn't because those who were following Jesus looked a lot like those who didn't and their actions and how they lived. They're looking for some kind of turning point. They need a turning point, and God knows this, so he gives them one. He gives them a turning point, but it's, I don't think it's one that they were looking for. He doesn't change their circumstances. He doesn't change their relationship status or probably didn't increase their finances, didn't change their job situation. In fact, in a lot of ways, things got worse. But God gives his people in a time of uncertainty, struggle, pain, hardship, persecution. He gives them what they should be looking for. And what he gives them is a revelation, an unveiling, which is what the word revelation means, an unveiling. And what does he unveil? He shows them Jesus, resurrected, risen, and glorified. 
And we talked a few Sundays ago, imagine that the book of Revelation is kind of like a drama or a play. And imagine that the curtain is closed. All right, imagine there's a curtain here. And, and, and so the seven churches to which the, the book of Revelation is written, they're the audience. And I think you could include yourselves, our house churches, they're in the audience. And the curtain is closed and it's quiet. The house lights dim. Right, and you hear the music playing a little bit, and then what happens? John the Apostle walks out. You kind of hear sandals on the stage. And he says this, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he begins to proceed and like a narrator, go through the first 11 verses of chapter 1 of Revelation. And then there's this moment when John, if you will, is on the stage, and the curtain is closed, and he's, he hears this voice speaking to him. And this is what we hear and see John say. Verse 12 of Revelation 1 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw. And it's as if in that moment, while John is standing there, he turns to hear this voice, and it's like God is behind the curtain, and he pulls the curtain open. He pulls it open. Oh, what do we see What's the first thing John sees? What's it say? I see seven golden lampstands. Well, what are those? Well, if you keep reading through chapter 1, go down to verse 20, we find out what those seven golden lampstands are. As for the mystery of the seven stars, John says, or the person speaking to him, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands are symbols, or or they point to these seven regions of churches to whom this unveiling, this vision is given to. Now let me just say this a little bit. Let me pause here for a moment, step out of Revelation, just do a little teaching here for us when it comes to the book of Revelation. You're going to read a ton of symbols and images as you come to this book of Revelation. Now, how should we interpret these symbols and images when it comes to the book of Revelation? We need to first interpret them literally. But there's two kinds of literal, if you will. The first literal is this. When it says John is on the island of Patmos, that's talking about a real man named John who's really on an island called Patmos. right? The second literal is when there's figurative language given to make a literal point or to to give a literal meaning. And an example of this are the lampstands. The lampstands are the symbol that that John sees, but we're told in verse 20 what they symbolize or represent. They represent the seven churches to whom this revelation is given. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to understand and, and interpret literally. The second thing we need to understand when we come to the book of Revelation, or really any point of Scripture, is use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture. A lot of us might see seven gold lampstands. What's our first inclination? YouTube. Internet. Google. If you would just spend ten more seconds and read on through the rest of chapter one, you're told what the seven lampstands mean. They stand for the seven churches. And so you always use Scripture to help you understand Scripture. And, and that being said, a lot of times when we're interpreting Scripture, we, we go to the New Testament to help us understand the Old Testament. When it comes to the book of Revelation, a lot of the symbols and images you're going to see and read actually come from the Old Testament. 
They come from prophets like Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, even books like Exodus and Leviticus. So in in the book of Revelation, the Old Testament is actually going to help you understand a lot of the meaning of the book of Revelation. We're going to see some of that this morning. So I just feel like we need to understand a little bit how do we approach these symbols and images that we're going to read in this first chapter of Revelation as well as throughout the rest of this letter. And so we need to interpret the scripture literally, and we need to use the Bible to help us understand the Bible. So let's go back to the lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, he says, verse 13, now, if you were a first century Christian, especially a Jewish Christian, and you saw this vision, you saw lampstands, what might your mind go to immediately? Can you think of a place where there were Jewish way of living, where there were lampstands? Right, the tabernacle, the temple. So I think right here, John and those who are reading this, immediately they're going to the tabernacle, to the, to the temple, which was where God met with his people, the presence of God. And what we're told in the book of Exodus chapter 27, go there with me real quickly, Exodus chapter 27, because I just want to show us how the Old Testament helps us make sense of this book. Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. It's talking about these lampstands that were in the Old Testament Jewish temple. Exodus 27, 20, and 21 says, You shall commend the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. And the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from when? What's it say? Say, tell me. Evening, isn't that interesting? You say, why is that interesting? Because you'd think it would say morning to evening. But it's saying evening to morning. What's that tell you? That light is to burn during the darkness. It is to shine the presence of God in the middle of the night. I don't know about you, but I got goosebumps right now. Because you apply that to these lampstands, apply it to the Christians who are thinking, like, we're in the middle of the darkness right now, God. Where are you? And what does God show them? He shows them these lampstands. And it was a responsibility of the priest in the Jewish temple, temple to make sure that those, those lampstands had enough oil to burn in the middle of the darkness. And I wonder, what's the application or the implication? I, I just wonder if God is reminding his church of your mission in the middle of the darkness. This is who you are. Think of what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. I'll read it. Jesus said, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's as if God shows the church, here's the lampstands, this is you. We know they've symbolized the church. We're already told that. So no matter how dark it gets, you still have a mission, and you actually shine brighter the darker it gets. Don't forget, church, that even though it's hard and even though it's difficult and whatever your struggle is, whatever you're looking for, don't forget that God is giving you what you need to light up so people can see Jesus in the middle of the darkness. Some of you know the Hawkins family, Tim and Christy. We're coming up to about a year when their little boy, Griffey, passed away. And those of us that have been around this young family for the past year, you want to talk about lampstands. 
You want to know what it looks like to burn bright in the middle of darkness. You just see them, and they'll be the first to tell you it is not them. It is Jesus in them. And on Thursday, we're going to remember and celebrate Griffey's one-year anniversary with Jesus. And what they want to throw is a party. Why? So that people can see Jesus through the darkness. That is every one of ours role as the church is to be a lampstand and to point people to Jesus no matter how dark it might get. But there's more that John sees. In Revelation chapter 1, what does he see? He says, in the middle of the lampstands, I see a son of man, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished brass or bronze refined in a furnace. Now, who is that? Well, if you go to chapter 2, verse 18, again, using the Bible to help us understand the Bible, chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus writes a letter to one of the churches, and this is how he starts this letter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, whose eyes like who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Same description, right? Same description. And so who do you know that's titled the Son of Man and titled the Son of God? Jesus. Who is John seeing? Jesus. Alive, resurrected in all his splendor and in all his glory. It's as if God pulls open the curtain, reminds the church, you have a mission in the middle of the darkness, and the way you live that mission is by seeing Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God, right in front of you. Can you imagine what, how encouraging that must have been for John? To be reminded, Jesus, there he is. He's alive. It's like in the middle between His resurrection and his return, God gives this revelation to remind the church Jesus is here. Keep your eyes on him. Now, back in the 80s, all right, product of the 80s myself, I grew up in in church in a kind of a musical family, and my mom and dad would travel, and we traveled with them, and they would sing at different churches. Growing up, And one of the songs they would sing at Easter was a song called I've Just Seen Jesus by Larno Harris and Sandy Patty. Don't be ashamed. Anybody know that song? Put your hand up. Yes. I want to challenge each and every person to go YouTube that not now but later and listen to this song I've Just Seen Jesus. I listened, listened to it again this morning and cried like a baby. Just overwhelmed. Overwhelmed of just being reminded of how glorious and good Jesus is. And there's a line or a lyric in that song that says this, I've just seen Jesus and I will never be the same. You cannot see Jesus for who he is and stay the same. You just can't. And we're going to see John's response when he sees Jesus resurrected and glorified. So who is this son of man? He's Jesus. Where is he? Where's Jesus? In the middle of the lampstands. What are the lampstands? The church. Where is Jesus in the middle of the mess? He's with his people. Don't you love that about our king? Don't you love that, that when things get hard, he doesn't bail? He stays. 
He's a king who stays with you, no matter how dark and how difficult and painful it might be. He will not leave you. He's always with you. He's a king who does not run away when it gets hard. He's with his church. He loves being with the church. You're like, well, I don't see Jesus. And hang out with this church. Well, they're imperfect. Yes, they are, but so are you. Jesus isn't. Don't look at us. Look at him. That's the point. We're not shining the light of lamps on ourselves. We're shining the light so people can see the one in the middle, Jesus. So you look at him. He's standing in the middle of his church. And then we have this description of Jesus and uh, like he's wearing this long robe with a golden sash around his chest. We won't look at these different passages, but again, Old Testament's gonna help you out here. The book of Exodus and Leviticus will tell you that's clothing that the high priest would wear, this golden sash. And so what was the high priest? What was his job? He'd walk into the temple. He'd offer the sacrifice needed to cover the sins of God's people. And then he would, you know, burn incense. And so what you have here is John is being reminded and the church is being reminded that our king is also our high priest who not only offered the sacrifice, but was the sacrifice once for all for your sins and mine. And now Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 34 tells you that you have a king who not only became your sacrifice, but now he's in the throne room of heaven. And you know what he's doing right now? He is praying for you. It says that he's interceding. Can you think about that? That Jesus, who is alive right now, is praying for you? And oh, he's just like, Jesus is alive. What? He's praying for you. He became the sacrifice for you and for me. He's clothed with this long robe with a golden sash. And I think this would incredibly encourage the believers, the Christians at that time, right? To know they're going through a tough time, but yet I know that my king is praying for me. He's not only with me, he's praying for me. What else? It says he has hair like wool, like snow. But what's that mean? Again, go to the Old Testament to find out what this means. The book of Daniel, chapter 7, will tell you that that's referring to the Ancient of Days. Daniel saw a very similar vision. Guy had white hair that was white like wool, and he's talking about the Ancient of Days. This is God, so he's basically saying that Jesus is God. He's timeless. He's the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days. Well, what, what's that mean that he's the Ancient of Days? Well, it means he's not affected by what's going on. I shouldn't say it that way. He's not surprised by what's going on. He's not surprised by your situation or circumstance. You know now that he's a king that's with you. He's a king praying for you, and he's timeless. He's a king that can get you through. He's seen it all before, and he's holy, untainted by our sin. Then it says he has eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Now, burnished bronze or brass at the time, that was known as one of the strongest metals in the ancient world at that time. You used burnished brass or bronze to, if you needed to use a metal that was strong and reliable and that could withstand the heat. Think about that for a moment. You have a king who can withstand whatever pressure you're going through. He can withstand the heat. He's got feet like burnished bronze. He's stable. And in a world and a culture and maybe your life circumstance, everything's just unstable. Jesus is not. He's strong. He stays. He's like an anchor that goes to the bottom of the ocean floor. And no matter how difficult and how rocky and di- crazy the storm might be in your life right now, you stay with Jesus. Jesus will be your anchor that will keep you stable in the midst of the difficulty. Then it says his voice is like the roar of many waters. Has anyone ever been to a waterfall? like a pretty decent-sized waterfall. What happens to the sound when you get close to the waterfall? Say it, say it out, Liam. 
It's deafening. There we go. Yeah, it's like you're all of a sudden talking to your family or friends in the close. You get like you can't hear them and they're right here. You're like standing, but you can't hear them because the roar of the waterfall, the voice of the water dominates all others. It drowns out all other voices. And I think that's the meaning here, that Jesus' voice drowns out all others. It's the final voice. It's the voice over all others. And we won't look at it, but later look at Psalm 29 if you want to see the strength of Jesus' voice. I remember as a kid growing up, and if myself, my brother or sister wanted to go do something, we weren't sure if maybe our parents would let us, we'd probably go to mom first. And we'd ask my mom, and then my mom would sometimes say, well, go ask your dad. Why would she say that? Because dad's voice was final. It was final. Whatever he said, that was it. His voice was the ultimate authority in the house for us. Jesus' voice is final. Listen, when Jesus speaks, storms stop. When Jesus speaks, demons run. When Jesus speaks, sickness leaves. When Jesus speaks, it is finished. It's finished. Sin, Satan, and death have been defeated. The voice of Jesus is final. And I love what our missionary Hansen said on Good Friday. He said, Jesus didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. Love that. That's your king, people, if you know him. And that king is alive. He's alive. Then we have this sword coming out of his mouth. Again, figurative language to help us see a literal meaning. If you read that, hopefully you're drawn back to Hebrews chapter 4 where it talks about the word of God is sharp and living and active like a two-edged sword. If it's got two edges on it, it cuts everywhere it goes. It pierces. It's also a weapon according to Ephesians chapter 6. It's a weapon that God uses to defeat the enemy and that you have at your disposal to defeat the enemy. So when the enemy comes knocking at your hard store and starts feeding you lies and starts accusing you of things, but you know that you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and you don't need experience or feel that shame or guilt anymore, but the enemy is going to try to do that to you, you just go straight to the voice of Jesus and his word because it is your weapon for overcoming the enemy. And so it's as if this, it's as if... John is up on the stage, right, and the curtain was closed, and he hears this voice turning to him, and God, God himself is the one who pulls the curtain open. What are you looking for? What kind of turning point do you need? What do you need more than anything, and what you and I both need more than anything is to see Jesus risen, alive. I was praying this morning, I'm like, God, I, I'm so inadequate to try to communicate what we're seeing here in Revelation. I can't do it. God help us if Jesus were to write you a letter or write me a letter and call you spiritually apathetic or complacent or dead or lukewarm and want to spit you out of his mouth. If you're seeing Jesus, there's no way you become that. But that's our problem. We get so easily distracted by lesser things than Jesus. And so God pulls the curtain back, and what do we see? We see a Jesus who will give you what you need to shine and stay burning for him no matter how dark it might get. He's alive. We see a King Jesus who will stand with you in the middle of your struggle, the pain, the persecution, even your spiritual mess. He's alive. 
We see King Jesus who's praying for you right now. We see King Jesus who's holy, untainted by sin, timeless, and unfazed by the increase of evil. We see a king who's strong, reliable, withstands the pressure, which means he's a king you can trust. And we see a king whose voice is final and his word is your greatest weapon. And let me tell you, he is risen. I know I caught you off guard. Our king is risen. He is risen. Amen, right? So what are you looking for, church? How should you respond to this? I think John shows us how. Read verse 17 and 18. Take a look. When John sees Jesus, what's he do? Flip the channel. What's he do? He falls to his face as though he were dead. You cannot see Jesus and not be changed. And if there's no change, then you probably haven't seen Jesus. But I love what Jesus does next. What's he do? He takes his right hand and he puts his right hand with the nail scars on John. The king comforts the sinner. He comforts the sinner, right? And then our king speaks and he says this, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And by the keys, I think Jesus simply is saying, it's not your time yet. Justice is coming, but it's not your time yet. And he says, I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forever. What's he mean? I think Jesus would say to us this morning this, church, I'm alive and I will always be alive. Yes, you deserve hell for your sins, but I've washed you clean of the shame and guilt and judgment you deserve by my blood on that cross. And I've defeated sin, death, and the enemy for you. You are free. And until I come back, there will never be a time when I'm not praying for you. There will never be a time when I won't give you what you need to burn bright for me in the darkness. There will never be a time when I won't be standing with you in the middle of your mess. There will never be a time when you can't trust me or when I'm not strong enough for you or when I'm not there for you. There will never be a time when my voice and word isn't final or when you need to wonder if justice is coming because it is. I'm alive and I'm coming back. That's your king. He's alive. So what are you looking for? God knows you need a turning point. And he may not change your circumstance, but he gives you something better. He gets you looking at the risen Jesus, your king, resurrected, glorified, and coming back. So what's your response to him this morning? What's your response to this king who's alive right now? As I'm speaking, Jesus is alive. Maybe there's someone here in the room that you've, you've never surrendered your life once and for all to Jesus as your king. And you know right now where you sit that God in, in heaven above is working in your heart. And he's saying to you, just surrender it all. 
once and for all. I want to be your king. Come follow me. And if that's you, right where you sit, just tell him, Jesus, I surrender to you. Come be my king. I follow you with all my life, right where you are. Just tell him in the quietness of your heart. And he promises he will forgive you and come in and transform you and change you. Maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus, but you've just grown cold and complacent and compromising. And you, like the seven churches, many of them need to repent and return to your Savior, King Jesus, this morning. What is the Spirit of God saying to you? What is he saying to you? What's your response to him, our risen Savior?